It's Sunday, June 9th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Here are the top headlines making news on the show this week. This is genocide. Difficult, challenging, and uncomfortable. We don't need to hear the word genocide come out of the Prime Minister's mouth. Survivors have told us their truths. The federal government's proposed bill to ban oil tankers off the northern coast of B.C. is proceeding. We consider Huawei incompatible with the security interests of the United States of America or our allies. And the allegations against Ms. Meng are baseless. There is much to work on with China. We are reflecting now on uh, whether or not we go directly and, and have a conversation with Xi or not to stand up for Canadians. Genocide. That's how the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls described their death and disappearances. The Prime Minister says that he accepts the report's findings, and now the Organization of American States wants to investigate the allegations of genocide. The final report included 231 recommendations to address violence against Indigenous women and girls. So what is the government going to do about it? Joining me now is Carolyn Bennett, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. Thank you for joining us, Minister. It's good to be here. This is a report that really struck a chord with a lot of Canadians, and it used some very strong language, including the term genocide, which your government has accepted. Do you believe that the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in this country, and what's happened to them, is a genocide? I think that, as you know, we've accepted the report, and we respect their findings. They spent a long time... Um, listening to families and and survivors and uh, and this was their conclusion and we accept that conclusion. We think that uh, that their uh, finding of genocide uh, needs to be respected and 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 it is it is we ask them in the terms of reference to look at the historical um, features and and systemic problems in our country and 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 they have reported on that. So does that mean that your government believes that it is a genocide if you accept those findings? I think that what we we are accepting them and I think that what we are saying is that there are as you know many people debating this now but I think that we have to accept that we we have to get on and do what we were asked to do by the families and survivors concrete actions to stop this terrible tragedy and that's what they're asking us to do and that's what we're going to do. I think part of the reason why people are so focused on the term genocide is because it has such a strong meaning, including in the United Nations, where they talk about, and this is part of the definition I'm reading, that is an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about the physical destruction in whole or in part of the group. There are still women disappearing today and being murdered. So if we're using the term genocide, would that mean that it is an ongoing genocide in Canada? I think what we're saying is that from, uh, from the Indian Act to residential schools to all of these things where government took actions that were killing people. This, this in Clearing the Plains, uh, James Daschick's book, I would recommend to anybody in terms of the actual actions that people took. Um, Dr. Bryce's report in 1906 that showed that children were dying in residential schools and the government buried the report and did nothing. So, so there, are, there is very clear evidence um, throughout government policies that, that 
governments knew what was happening. Sometimes they caused it, but sometimes they found out and then did nothing about it. And so that, that's why it's so serious as we, as we look now to, to do what the families and survivors asked us to do. Justice for their loved one, support and healing for the families, and concrete actions to make sure that, that this never happens again to any other family. And that's the work that we've been doing. We always said we weren't going to wait till the final report to get to, to, to begin to put in place those those actions in terms of housing and shelters and 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 dealing with sexism and racism in all of our institutions that that actually still we mean that racism and sexism kills and that and that we have to do more we clearly have to do more because there are still um, ongoing um, issues that, that that are unacceptable to all Canadians. When you talk about the involvement of government institutions, I think that's particularly interesting because that, that in particular is where the government has responsibility. Do you believe that past Canadian governments and in particular government institutions like the RCMP were complicit in a genocide? I think that uh, right from the beginning when, when there was a decision by our the first Prime Minister to starve um, the Indians, absolutely. I, that that there were there are actions, direct actions that were taken, and then and then actions not taken when the truth was revealed that people were dying. So, if there was a genocide, would your government support the call by the OAS to have a body that will actually look into this and investigate if it's still happening in Canada? Absolutely. That it there is. A, we welcome a rules-based international system. And so once this report has been tabled, if, if anybody wants to come and look, we believe that we are putting in place um, the concrete actions to stop this national tragedy. We believe um, that, that, that everything we have been trying to do as a government is addressing this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the two-spirited uh, Particularly, this is this is a this is about about us wanting to do better. The families asked us to do better. You know, it was you know looking out on Parliament Hill. Uh, you know, when the Stolen Sisters report came with Amnesty International in 2004, meeting Gladys Reddick and and Bernie Williams here. You know, when on one of their first walks for justice, they have been really clear that they. They wanted this tragedy to stop and they expected government to do something about and it I and that's what we're it, doing. Everyone agrees that what's happened has been tragic, that there's a history of misogyny and racism here, but people like Erwin Kotler, uh, who's an expert in genocide, people like Romeo Dallaire have said that they think it's a misuse of the term in this report. What do you say to them? I say that the, the, the scholars are going to debate this. Uh, we have to act on the findings in the report and we will do that and we are doing that. There's been frustration in the Indigenous community because your government did make a lot of big promises to them. Obviously, it's a very complicated file, but if you look at things like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you said you were going to implement all of those recommendations. Your government's nowhere close on it. Uh, on this particular report, 231 recommendations. How many of these, honestly, are likely to be implemented before the election? Well, I think, again, that many have said that this isn't a checklist. This is, this is about 
a whole of government, across all government departments and all sectors. So even with the, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think we're pretty proud that, that we have completed or have made significant progress on the 80% of the ones that were, were had the federal government's responsibility. But there are many other areas where we know we've got to, to go further. I think that um, I believe that the changes we've made in, in Bill C-92 on, on giving and, and a, a getting out of the way so nations can assert their jurisdiction on, on children and youth is huge. It was the first five calls um, to action in the Truth and Reconciliation, reducing the number of children in care. In Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, in almost every gathering that I attended in, in during the pre-inquiry, that that attachment to the, the child welfare system, child abuse, were, were central um, to, to the history of not only the victims and survivors, but also the perpetrators. That, that we are, are doing the things that are truly important, and we are going to get all of this done. There was an implication when Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned that there were a number of people in the Indigenous community who felt that your government was a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. What do you say to them? I think that uh, that it's quite that the the First Nations, Inuit, Métis are are always going to want to us to do better and do more. But I am hearing uh, coast to coast to coast that people are very grateful that this is a government that has actually been changing the relationship from one of denial of rights to the recognition of rights, and that the investments over twenty billion dollars that we have made, as the as the national chief says, for Kelowna's, uh, that we are making a, a significant difference. And we will have those boil water. Uh, advisories lifted by 2021. We more for housing, more for education. All of these things that are are so important uh, as we go forward. But the main thing is the consciousness raising that has happened. That all Canadians know that they have a role to play. And so whether it's Rotary clubs or universities or school curricula and the wonderful teachers that are are really trying to to fill in the gaps of the history I never learned in school. We, this is this is very different. Indigenous students um, that I meet with at universities are, for the first time, saying they want to be a public servant in their nation's government. We never heard that before, and and I am, I really believe that all Canadians uh, um, have shared in the shame of the way that that this relationship um, happened, uh, the colonization that they're starting to understand that that that. That our the colonial governments replaced the good things that were there before, listening to women, uh, putting children first, uh, the medicine wheel in, instead of the medical model. But but thinking seven generations out, there are some very important values and an indigenous worldview that all Canadians need to know. Okay, Minister, thank you very much. Thank you. MPs only have a few days left to tackle two of the most controversial bills introduced by the Trudeau government. They're back after being pummeled in the Senate. The first is a tanker ban on the West Coast, followed closely by Bill C-69, which overhauls the environmental assessments for the energy sector. The bill the Senate sent back to the House has over 100 amendments. Will the House sign on to these changes? 
Joining me now are three MPs, Sean Fraser, who is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for the Environment, John Broussard for the Conservative Party, and Rachel Blaney for the NDP. Welcome to all of you. Uh, one of the big discussions we've had on Parliament Hill this week has been looking at the tanker ban and also about C-69, which is the bill that would change the rules around natural resource products. Both of these got a pretty rough ride in the Senate, Sean, and we've talked about this before. It looks like the tanker ban is going to go ahead and go back to the House. So is C-69, but with some significant amendments. What amendments are you willing to accept? Uh, so first, if you'll allow me, just on, on C-48, I think one of the things that was important to note was the measures contained in that bill uh, were supported by Canadians during the last election. They were part of our campaign platform to protect the unique ecosystems on the north, co north coast of British Columbia. Uh, the Senate, in my opinion, uh, did the right thing by rejecting the Senate committee's approach. Um, it's not for me to tell them what to do, uh, but I am glad that they've uh, taken to heart uh, the, the need to recognize the priorities that Canadians signaled in the 2015 campaign. Uh, when it comes to your question on Bill C-69, I believe there's 188 amendments that came through just last night, uh, the largest number of amendments from the Senate in the history of, of uh, Canadian politics. Uh, the review is underway. I don't want to prejudge the outcome. Uh, we're going to consider them in good faith. Uh, to the extent that they can actually improve and strengthen the bill uh, and don't undermine the spirit of the bill, I expect that some will be supported. Uh, those that seek to undermine the environmental protections, the ability of the public to participate, or the certainty for industry, uh, those are ones that I expect will be looked at with uh, greater scrutiny before getting any approval from the government. John, are there any of those amendments that are must-haves from your perspective? Well, I mean, we're clearly looking at the amendments today. Uh, obviously, uh, they came in uh, late Thursday night, uh, so uh, we're still monitoring this. But I think if you go back to uh, looking at, for example, what Jason Kenney said, uh, if the bill passes with the 180 amendments, then uh, there are many measures within those amendments uh, and the bill to support. Uh, but it's also important to understand as well, Mercedes, that, you know, Senate went across the country. They went uh, literally from coast to coast listening to Canadians and those that would be affected uh, with this piece of legislation. And that's the reason why they came up with so many amendments, because it accurately reflected what Canadians were telling them as they held those Senate hearings across the country. Um, you know, it's not those amendments are going to come back. The bill will still be in place, but it's still a flawed piece of legislation, and it's going to have a significant impact on our natural resource sector if the government, in fact, rejects many of those amendments that the Senate has proposed. And so uh, we're still monitoring the situation. We're, we're looking at those amendments closely and seeing how they have a significant impact to that bill and whether there's any of those amendments that we can support. Rachel, is there a reasonable middle ground here in terms of accepting some of the amendments, but not all? Well, we're definitely looking at the amendments. And during the process within Parliament, um, on our side, you know, the NDP proposed 100 amendments to this bill and, and really looked at some of the concerning issues. And I think, you know, one of the issues that has come up again and again is the relationship with Indigenous communities and rep, rep, respecting their rights and title. And, you know, when we talk about what's happening in the Senate, another bill that's being held up is Bill 262, which is around UNDRIP and making sure that legislation is screened through that filter. So when you look at the history of Canada, you see that again and again we're going to the court systems because that part is not being addressed. So we have to look at that. We have to make sure that if we're going to be developing our resources, we're doing it properly, that we're doing it in an environmentally sustainable way. And these things really need to be addressed, because if they are not addressed, we're going to continue to see the divisiveness that we're seeing in communities right now. So we're going to look at those amendments, and we'll definitely be supporting similar ones to the ones that we have already proposed. Sean, there is going to be tremendous anger in Alberta over, in particular, the tanker ban bill. Westerners who say, 
they're being discriminated against, that they can't get oil to water, but on the East Coast you can bring oil in. What do you say to those Albertans who think the federal government does not hear them? Well, it's it's really important. I actually spent about five years working uh, out west in Calgary, and, and a lot of the my, my practice in law before politics did touch on the energy sector as well. Uh, this is not a, a ban on the export of, of Canadian energy products. In fact, of course, you know, uh, we're coming down to the June 18th uh, date where we uh, we uh, will be looking at the, the fate of the TMS. Project. Project. to move it via tanker off the West Coast. But it's, I think one of the things really important is that we recognize under the uh, the current system there wasn't public buy-in on the uh, the environmental assessment process that existed previously. That's why we keep, continue to see major projects tied up in litigation. With a new environmental uh, layer of environmental considerations uh, and engagement with Indigenous populations, the Trans Mountain Project can go ahead in the right way that's actually going to get Canadian project products to markets other than the United States. Uh, this is really important for Western Canada. In fact, it's important for Eastern Canada too. There's a lot of people from my community that still fly in and out of uh, Western Canada, work in the energy sector. And it's important that we move forward, but that we do it in the right way that uh, involves the voices of Indigenous communities and takes into account the environmental concerns as we move forward with well, growing the energy sector. There's a sector. lot in the oil sector who say they're concerned this could kill it. But I, I do want to move on to our next topic because it certainly sure. was something people were talking a lot about as well on the Hill this week, and that is one of your Conservative MPs, Michael Cooper. Um, he was on the Justice Committee. He was dealing with a witness, a witness who had said that um, mass shooters are listening to people like Conservative of commentators, neo-Nazis, and he objected to that, but the way he objected was to read part of the manifesto from mm -hmm. the New Zealand shooter and his mm -hmm. name into the record. Right. That has since been expunged, mm -hmm. but many are calling for him to be kicked out of the Conservative caucus. Yeah. Do you think he should be allowed to remain in? You know, I, uh, Mercedes, spent a lot of time with Michael this week. Michael's a terrific young man, uh, and he's been a terrific parliamentarian, and the work that he's done on the Justice Committee up to this point uh, has been fantastic, uh, whether it's related to SNC-Lavalin, some of the, one of the private members' bill that he had with respect to Wynne's law. I can tell you that Michael, uh, first and foremost, has apologized for his remarks. Our leader, Andrew Scheer, uh, has dealt with Michael uh, in that respect by uh, removing him from the Justice Committee. Uh, but he is, he is a uh, young man who uh, understands that in the heat of the moment, at the time, that uh, but perhaps... But he, he did bring it in with him, which would suggest that it wasn't in the heat of the moment if you have that in front of you. Well, there, there, there was some question as to whether he actually had a physical paper, and I'm not, I'm not going to argue that, that point. I wasn't there. I don't know. Uh, but I can tell you that he does regret uh, what he said, um, and he's made it very clear through his apology. Rachel, is it sufficient? Well, I just, first of all, think that it is just devastating that this happened in this place. You know, we are working hard to making the society that we live in more inclusive. And when we look at what's happened in our country and in other countries in these communities, we have to address hate. We have to address it in a meaningful way, and we need to stand up. And that takes a lot of hard work and dedication. I think it's horrifying what happened. You know, I wasn't there either, but the fact that he read into the record those words, I think you cannot hold accountability enough. And you know what? Even if you're a good person and you make a mistake like that, you must be held accountable. And it's not about apologizing to the leader of the Conservative Party. It's about acknowledging what you did, taking responsibility, and apologizing to the people. Final word to you, Sean. Uh, certainly, I was uh, extremely disappointed uh, when I saw what was read into the record and when I saw the approach, and it seemed to me as though it was planned when they knew who the witness was going to be. Uh, one of the things that inspired me uh, to get into politics in the first place was I saw things that deeply troubled me uh, during the last government. I saw uh, the, the snitch line uh, uh, that um, 
than Minister Alexander and, and Kelly Leach were, were promoting. Uh, I saw efforts that uh, continued commentary around old stock Canadians, and it feels like we're, we're turning the clock back. Uh, it's disappointing. I know Michael. I don't think he's a bad person. Uh, but to me, the uh, I feel as though he was treated with kid gloves to be removed from a committee that had about four meetings left. Uh, it seems to me that to, to demonstrate that he's taking this seriously, I think there needs to be uh, a more serious uh, way to deal with, uh, with, with the behavior at issue. We are out of time, but thank you all very much for joining us, and we'll see you on the Hill next week. Thank you. Much Excellent. Thank you. Russia's biggest mobile carrier is joining forces with Huawei. The Chinese tech giant will build the 5G network for Russia. Canada is still considering whether Huawei could be a player in its 5G network. Meanwhile, U.S. President Donald Trump has signed an executive order banning American companies from using telecommunications equipment made by firms posing a national security risk, a risk that many claim comes with doing business with Huawei. Joining me now from Washington is James Lewis, Senior Vice President and the Director of the Technology Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also a former member of the U.S. Foreign Service who worked on the high-tech trade with China. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So we talk a lot about Huawei and whether or not it's a national security concern. You worked intimately in this space. What is it specifically about Huawei that makes it such a potential threat? Huawei is closely linked to the Chinese government and the Chinese security services. That's been true from the start. It was founded by a PLA member. Uh, it gets giant subsidies from the Chinese government uh, to make sure that it can dominate the market. Um, it has a long record of commercial espionage, including against Nortel. One of the reasons Nortel went out of business was because of Huawei spying. Um, it's just not a company you should trust. And if you use it in your 5G networks, it gives China a greater opportunity for espionage, and it gives them the potential to disrupt telecommunication services whenever they want. So all those reasons make Huawei uh, a deeply troubling partner in telecommunications. Are you surprised that, given all those reasons, the Canadian government is still considering this? Not at all. Uh, many countries have this problem. Uh, China's a big market. And so if you look at Germany, if you look at Britain, um, they don't want to alienate the Chinese market. And the Chinese will punish you if you ban Huawei. When Australia banned Huawei, they immediately cut Australian coal exports, which are the biggest exports from Australia to China. So you have a, a punitive uh, customer who will punish you. And people say to themselves, I'm stuck. I either open myself to Chinese coercion and espionage, or I keep the China market. And that's a hard decision. Is there any way that Huawei technology can be integrated that wouldn't compromise national security, or is it black and white? This is the big debate. Uh, the British argue that uh, if you keep Huawei to the edge of the network, if you don't let them in sensitive locations, like you didn't let them supply around Ottawa, um, that that is enough to mitigate the risk. The only way to eliminate the risk is to ban Huawei, but the British say this sort of partial ban uh, works well enough. On the other hand, if you talk to the Australians, they say it's only a ban. The ban is the only thing that works. But this is the big debate. Can you do a partial ban, which has some advantages because it allows you to avoid having to say to the Chinese, we're not going to buy from Huawei? A tough question. But you have a situation where President Trump is 
kind of putting Huawei on the table as a negotiating tactic with the Chinese in this trade deal. Does that undermine the national security argument in the eyes of allies if it's something that the president is willing to negotiate away if he gets the deal he wants? The Chinese put Huawei on the table from the start, and they put Meng, the CFO, who's being detained in Vancouver, on the table. So these are things that the Chinese want. Um, the American intelligence and defense communities feel very strongly that it would be a mistake to buy from Huawei. Uh, most U.S. companies, the big telcos, don't buy from Huawei. Uh, but it is a trade topic, in part because the Chinese keep bringing it up. And that does make people uncertain. One of the questions you hear from some of the smaller European countries is, look, we're ready to ban Huawei, but can you promise us that you won't turn around and change your mind in two weeks? So there is that uncertainty. I don't think that the administration will change its views on Huawei, but it's difficult to predict. Speaking of trade, something Canada has been suffering through recently with China after arresting the CFO of Huawei. Uh, they've taken it out on canola imports. They've been looking at potentially uh, closer inspections on meat, which they say may be contaminated. There's a lot of fear in the agricultural sector here that they're going to be picked on further by China because Canada is not complying in releasing the CFO of Huawei. What do you think Canadians should expect in terms of uh, Chinese punishment? You know, look at uh, China's behavior towards its own citizens. They are very punitive. They are not bound by the law. They um, do what they want, and they can be—this is a country that has almost two million people in re-education camps in uh, northern China because of their religion. Um, they're a tough partner. For me, I have the luxury of being in a country that can—with some difficulty say to the Chinese, we don't need your money. Uh, but for other countries, it's a lot harder. And I hear this in Europe. I hear this in Southeast Asia. I think it's a legitimate problem. The Chinese will punish you. But you have to ask yourself in the long run, do you want a partner who's a bully? Um, I would not. Uh, the question there is, I guess, what do you think Prime Minister Trudeau should do next? He hasn't picked up the phone uh, to call the president of China yet. There are some who say he should do that. There's others who say that risks escalating it for Canadians who are detained in China. What advice would you give on how to deal with China at this point? You know, his moment of leverage is before he makes the decision on Huawei, because the Chinese will not want to alienate him. So this is the time to pick up the phone and say, you know all those Canadians that you've detained for no apparent reason. Um, you know these trade threats. Uh, you have to back away. Now, Canada, like everyone else, would have to be prepared, if they decide to ban Huawei, um, to face some retaliation. But I think now's the moment of leverage, at least for the Canadians who are being falsely imprisoned. Um, in the long run, uh, people may have to make a choice. This is the choice that faces the British now. We don't have a readout of the uh, president's talks in the UK, but the British, you know, they'd like to have it both ways. They'd like to sell to China, and they'd like a free trade agreement with America. And increasingly in the US, the position is you get one or the other, you don't get both. And so for Canada, it's a tough choice. Uh, that's why people hope the partial ban would work. You can give a little to the Chinese, a little to national security. Um, I would probably say you're going to have to think hard about why you wouldn't ban Huawei, why you would take the risk of letting them into your networks. And um, it's something that could make not only the relationship difficult with the U.S., but more importantly, Canada's economic future uh, difficult when it comes to China. Mr. Lewis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Plus, check us out online at thewestblock.ca. 
I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.